Well, I think we should be moving on to the final of these treasures. It feels like, uh, uh, well, you can hear the, the ardency with which we both speak about samadhi, because it just, you know, to cultivate this in our lives, to bring it into our moments of relating is just a gift beyond words and a lifetime's cultivation. And it can start from just an appreciation of okayness in your hands, <laughs> you know, just looking for these sources of nourishment and settling. And we can see again how samadhi, this capacity for collectedness, really is the ground for the final of these qualities, equanimity. Equi, equanimity, balanced mind, balanced heart, the capacity to find and keep refinding balance in the midst of the ever-changing conditions of our lives, the ever-changing joys and sorrows, you know, pleasantnesses and unpleasantnesses of our lives. One of the two words the Buddha uses for this um, is, is a word that has a sense of perspective, of being able to overlook, almost like to stand back and have a perspective on things. Another word has the sense of being able to stand in the midst of conditions, being able to find and sustain our feet in the midst of. And again, this can be a very, you know, literal embodied practice of staying in contact with the soles of our feet in the midst of a difficult conversation or those moments in a mindfulness class or a, uh, another work setting where you feel the potential to be blown off balance. You know, uh, and there's a reason why equanimity is the final one in the list here, just as it is the final element in all the lists of which it is part in the Buddha's teachings. They, wherever there's equanimity in the list, it always comes last because it really is the North Star of this practice. It is really the, the compass setting, both in Buddhist teaching and practice and also in contemporary mindfulness-based approaches. Uh, an appreciative, friendly, compassionate, steady equanimity that is the medicine for and yeah the medicine for the reactivity and the uh, kind of impulsive uh, kind of yeah reactive ways that so easily cause difficulties internally in our own hearts and bodies and minds and also in our relationships with others and indeed in our world And I, I agree, equanimity always finds itself as being a fruition. And it's a fruition of all of the other qualities. I mean, equanimity doesn't leave joyfulness behind. It doesn't leave kindness behind. doesn't leave compassion behind. doesn't leave mindfulness behind. But it's actually infused with all of these other qualities. I mean, although you find that at the end of, 
of the list in, in Buddhist teaching, it's actually the first lesson you teach people in eight-week programs, you know, without naming it as such. You know, you think about teaching people the body scan. You know, you don't tell people, let's hang out in the pleasant, you know, and let, let's avoid the unpleasant. You're actually teaching people to be equally near all things, with balance, with poise, without being overwhelmed, without being hooked or caught. This is a tremendous shift for many people to discover they have the capacity to do this. So it's actually the first primary lesson in, in eight-week program, I, I feel anyway. I don't think of equanimity as a state. I think of equanimity as an embodied understanding, as an embodied understanding. Equanimity is really what emerges when we have put down our arguments with the unarguables. Equanimity is an embodied understanding of the nature of change and all its implications. Um, equanimity is a, an embodied understanding of, of the uncertainty and instability of the conditions we all live in the middle of. You know, equanimity is an embodied understanding of the, the fruitlessness of clinging and holding. And, you know, equanimity is an embodied understanding of, of the, the damage born of aversion and anxiety. It's an embodied understanding, I think, that allows us in, to enter into this life engaged, responsive, caring but not overwhelmed but not overwhelmed equanimity allows us to appreciate and delight in the lovely and the pleasant without ever losing sight of the fact that this could change in a moment equanimity allows us to to love the moments when we feel quite stable and safe and know that our worlds could crumble in a moment you know equanimity allows us to love without holding, to love without holding, to allow people to, to make their own changes without feeling disappointed or let down or somehow undermined. You know, equanimity allows for a, a freedom within human relationship when we no longer try to keep someone captured by our views of them knowing that they too can change in a moment. Equanimity allows us to stand in the middle of the pain of pain, you know, in the midst of aging, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of death, our own dying or the deaths of those we love, knowing that this is, this is not something because we've done something wrong, you know, this is not failure, that this is life. So, Equanimity is this very deep sense of alignment with, with how things actually are, rather than our worlds of, you know, pretending or imagining or, you know, thinking how things have to be different. Equanimity is not indifference, by the way. It's certainly not indifference. It, it's about balance and poise and steadiness. It's sometimes said that equanimity is born when the, when the fires of, of greed, hatred, and delusion begin to cool. 
You know, I, I think we've all tasted moments of equanimity, you know, of that kind of balance. Um, you know, when we're not bound by those compulsions of, of wanting or not wanting or fearing or trying to hold, we've all tasted those moments of balance. And it doesn't make us indifferent. It doesn't make us unfeeling or unresponding. In fact, the opposite, I think equanimity allows us what, to care deeply without holding, um, to live fully with, without the shadows of disappointment, um, to be creative without being invested in outcomes or expectations. Equanimity, you know, it's not surprising in, in Buddhist psychology that equanimity is used interchangeably with the word nibbana or, or liberation or freedom. It's often another word uh, for liberation or freedom because the fires of compulsion are, are cooled, are cooled. Isn't this really what it is to mature as a human being to cultivate to deliberately intentionally practice widening our window of tolerance as it's sometimes called the the range of experiences that we can meet with some degree of balance and steadiness and good-heartedness and responsiveness. Again, we can feel that this is a kind of training of our nervous systems and hearts and minds which can so easily be so reactive in the face of difficulty. And don't we sense after the last couple of years just how, uh, in a sense, the uh, curriculum has been to practice widening our capacity to meet the sorrows and the joys with our feet on the ground. And enough sense of regulation and uh, clarity that we can respond with kindness to ourselves, to others, that we can remain sensitive to suffering where we exp experience it and therefore remain responsive rather than reactive in the face of the joys and the difficulties. Again, I think of equanimity perhaps better conceived as a verb than a state. You know, it's this capacity to come back into balance. It's not the same as just being a uh, kind of inanimate, not able to... to to feel. Uh, the Buddha did compare uh, a kind of equanimity in the face of praise and blame to being like a rock that isn't, you know, blown around by the wind. I personally prefer to think of a tree that is deeply grounded, that has its roots in that which is steady and trustworthy, but also is affected, is able to move and is blown by the winds that blow, but keeps its uprightness, keeps its capacity to come back into balance, keeps that 
sense of uh, steadiness that comes from having roots that stretch deeply into uh, the kind of embodied earth, if you like. And, and this is the sense of the ground of our practice in mindfulness of the body. This is, I think, really where we cultivate equanimity. It's feet and seat you know, that can support that. And sometimes we really need that when we're teaching mindfulness, as well as when we're in the midst of life. And we can see how all these seven beautiful treasures that we've been exploring really are in the service of this steadiness and capacity for responding to life. You know, these, these seven treasures su support each other. These qualities are kind of aspects of each other, even. They're, they're, they're entirely inseparable from each other. And that any one of them can be a portal into cultivating all of them. And there's real wisdom in taking this uh, framework that we've been exploring today as a theme in our practice over a period of time. It might be we have a sense, okay, for the next you know, uh, seven months, I'm going to cultivate uh, one of these qualities each month and make it a really deliberate cultivation, knowing that it will catalyze and bring the others into being. To, to use this as, as our way into embodying the Dharma more and more deeply in our lives and in our relationships. So I'm going to hand back to Christina in a moment, but just really to thank you for your presence and your practice and your reflectiveness today. Thank you for being willing to practice these teachings in a time when our world truly needs more of just what we've been reflecting on today truly needs more. Thank you for dedicating your practice and for many of you your teaching to bringing these more fully into the world and may you truly know the blessings of this practice and its potential.